Last week, um, we, we continued on in the book of Acts. We've now gone through chapters 6 and 7. Um, we looked at the life of Stephen last week, and we, we witnessed in Scripture the death of Stephen, but we were very, very careful to connect the dots that Stephen's death gives birth to world missions. It is the beginning of the missions movement. Um, I think much of the, uh, of the cross of Jesus Christ, one man's death brought salvation and life to all. And, and so, in a, in, in a sense, Stephen dies very much like Jesus in Acts 7 with what he says. But it, you have the same dynamic that this one martyr's death, this godly man, gives birth to a movement that is only picking up steam 2,000 years later. Uh, so, this week, here's what we're going to do. We are going to take a look at the very first mission trip. Um, I want to go ahead and warn you, uh, there's seatbelts in the pews. You need to buckle up for this one. Um, this thing is a doozy. I, I often say that parts of Scripture are my favorites. This is really one of my favorite, favorite parts. The whole two-week Chronicles of Philip, it is a joyride. It is wild, but it is also in extremely challenging. Um, today, especially, I... I just have found myself preparing for this sermon and all week long, I'm like, oh Lord, I am so deeply just pierced by this, by this scripture, I'm challenged. Uh, I've been challenged this week in regards to my fears, um, my prejudices, and folks, we all got those. Um, I, I've been challenged in regards to my theology, and I've been charge, uh, uh, challenged in, in regards to my own laziness. So. Um, I just want you to know I'm up here. These are, are red wing uh, shoes I have on today, steel-toed, because God has been mashing my feet all week long. And so I want to share that love today. I want to welcome you to my world. Um, but, but in all honesty, y'all, this is a glorious passage of Scripture. This, this is such good, me this is a meaty meal for us today. What we're going to discover today in Acts chapter 8, uh, we're not going to go all the way through, but we're, we're going to find out, we're going to find out that there are four common traps. And these are bear traps, y'all. And these things, when we step into them, they keep us from being the mission of Jesus Christ. They keep us from going out there and telling people about Jesus. So, uh, th these are four that will set you free. So, before we talk about them, let's pray. Lord, in Jesus' name. We just thank you for today. And God, we, we thank you that your mercies are new every single morning. Lord, I thank you for, for, for where it says in the word of God that your love is better than life. And Lord, the flip of that is that your love brings us to life. So God, as we look at the very first mission, and Lord, as, as we do, we hold that mirror up and say, Lord, where do I stand? Father, how am I when it, when it comes to readiness and um, even desire to proclaim Christ to people who are lost in my world, Lord, today, would you just knock some of the rust off of us? Father, would you oil our joints with the word of God and the oil of your spirit? And Lord, would you just cause us to, to embrace, to embrace the reason why we are here on planet earth as children of God? We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, four traps. You ready to hear about them? Good. Let's start with the first one, Acts chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. On that day, and that day is the day of Stephen's death, 
On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Okay, right there, we, we, we see what we hinted at a little bit last week, that Stephen's death, it unleashes a tornado of violent persecution against the church. And, and when we say this is a really big deal and a really scary deal, that's not an exaggeration because we just read, the Word of God just told us it identifies this as a great persecution. And the aim is to destroy the church. So when you want to think about this, get a, get a picture of it in your mind, think of things like the L.A. riots, okay? Think of the charging of the bulls at Pamplona. Think about an angry swarm of bees because Christians are being persecuted like that. This is furious. It's wild. It's frenzied. Um, and, and by the way, uh, Christians are being persecuted and attacked by a mob and a group of people led by none other than Saul. Y'all remember Saul? We, we, we touched on Saul for about two seconds in Acts 7.58, but he shows up in Acts 7, and the guy sounds like an extra in a movie. Some men came, and they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. No big deal. Who is Saul? Why do we even bring up his name? He sounds, sounds like a hat check girl, right? But now this guy, he has witnessed the death of Stephen, and he, the bloodlust of those folks who stoned Stephen to death, they infect, all of that just infects Saul. And so in Acts chapter 8, this guy comes out, and he is furious, he is zealous, and he is going house to house. Think about a house-to-house -house search, looking for anyone who believes, anyone who dares to confess Jesus Christ, and boom, he's throwing them in jail. Y'all, this is a scary situation for God's people. You know, there, there are times in life when we get afraid of stuff and, you know, somebody looking in from the outside goes, hey, you know, I, I get it that you're scared, but what you're scared of is it's, it's kind of been cooked up in here. You've connected dots. The thread is not what you think it is. This time the thread is real. The enemy is loose. Military people, this is DEFCON 1 for the church. High alert, very dangerous, super severe. But you know, that's not the greatest danger here. The greatest danger for the church in this moment is a temptation to step right into a trap. And the trap is that in the face of persecution, we, the church, withdraw. You know, it gets hot in the kitchen, we get out of the kitchen. In the face of persecution, we just get out of there. And it is so tempting, all right? Every one of us in our flesh, we understand this. You know, the, uh, they don't like me. There's opposition. I, I, I'm in trouble here. What do we do? We want to run. We want to hide. We want to cover up. We want to keep quiet about Jesus Christ and just blend into the crowd. I mean, my safety is in danger. And so, what does the first church do when, I tell you, that their, their blood could be in the streets in a moment. Here's what the first church does in Acts 8:4. Those who had been scattered... They preached the word everywhere they went. 
They are on the run for their lives fleeing Jerusalem, and they are preaching Jesus every time they run into a situation where somebody doesn't know who he is, that he came to save the lost. And you read this and you think, what is the matter with these people? You know, from a human standpoint, are these people crazy? Do, Do they have a death wish or something? Not at all. Here's the deal with the first church in this moment. They just have a radically different perspective of our God than quite often the Western church does. See, the first church, they know who this God is. They know what this God can do. They know what this God is all about, and it changes everything. And and when I say they know all this, here's what I'm talking about. The resurrection of Jesus The ink hasn't even dried on the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Many in the first church either witnessed it or they heard about it just after it happened. This is fresh in their mind. He died and he was raised, the son of God. They have also all been rescued from spiritual death. You know, they're dying in their sins. Now they all have new life. So they've witnessed the resurrection. They're all coming to new life, but on top of that, They're just a few chapters away from Pentecost. These people have just been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Here's what that means, okay? The energy of God, the fire of God, the power of God, the joy of God, the peace of God. These, you know, when an actor goes, well, you know, director, what's my motivation? These people are motivated by the Spirit of God. They're just all full up to overflowing. So they got that going on. They have also just seen God overcome demons, overcome sickness. They're seeing the worst sinners get saved. I mean, this is happening right after Pentecost. But they've also seen something that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Satan has shown up and said, all right, God, let's go. Come on. I mean, you know, Old West duel. Three times Satan has drawn his guns on God. Three times, boom, he's down in the street. God has defeated Satan three times, and they've just seen all of that. So see, even though the enemy is hot on their trail, man, their trust is in this God. They know who this God is, and it changes everything. They also understand, because the last words of Jesus tell them to do something as the church, they understand that they are here for a reason. There is only one reason that God left the church on this earth, and that's to make Jesus Christ known. They've just heard the Great Commission, so so they know exactly what the purpose is. They're here to make Jesus known. This same Jesus, too, that gave them the Great Commission has also told them that they will suffer persecution. That if they're going to share him, that that, that comes with it. So the, the, the church takes all of this, okay? It's like a bouquet of flowers. They pull all of this together. And what do they do in the face of persecution? They face the persecution. And they preach Jesus Christ. Amen, brother. Come on, Brian. I'm with you, baby. We also see something else here, okay? Now, this is subtle, and you got to look for it. But once you see it, we also see that Satan has overreached once again. This persecution is already starting to backfire in Satan's face. You know, I'll make them run for the hills and that'll be the end of it. Jesus, 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 Jesus. They haven't even gotten, they've barely left the city and and this persecution is already backfiring. And I could just, I just picture a demon here leaning into Satan at this moment and going, you know, chief, um, is this what you had in mind? I mean, I thought you were going to like smother the fire, 
but all, all you're doing are spread, spreading the flames of this thing. And you sort of, you, I sort of see Homer Simpson sticking his head in the frame and going, do it ain't working. It's just not working. But see, that is God for you. This is, this is what God does. When we stand with him, when we take him at his word, when we step out into what he said step, step out into, God will pull a Genesis 50-20 every time. You know what Genesis 50-20 is? What the enemy means for evil. God will go ahead and turn it around and use it for good to save many lives. That's exactly right. I mean, th this is what he does. This is what God does best. And so these, these persecuted Christians, they lean into all of these promises. And man, they just keep soldiering on. They, they, they march it out and they go. All right. So that's trap number one, withdrawing in the face of persecution. Um, trap number two comes uh, off the heels of, of the bad guy and the good guy, right? We identified the bad guy. Uh, well, we know it's Satan, but the human bad guy in this story is Saul, okay? We ID'd him. He's the man in black, right? Well, now, in, uh, in rides now the man in white, the good guy, Philip. And y'all, Philip, the only way I can think of describe him is a high school term I used to use. Philip is a trip, y'all. This brother is a trip. Now, Philip is another deacon, okay? And we learned about the deacons before. Um, seven were identified in the very beginning. Stephen, who, who has died and gone. And now in rides Philip. And we can see from Acts 8, 5 through 8, it's, it's pretty obvious here that Philip and Stephen have graduated from the same spiritual class. Because Philip comes in and he is, he is just as on fire for Jesus Christ as Stephen was. Listen to this guy. Acts 8, 5 through 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I bet there was great joy in that city. So listen, first of all, Philip is already, uh, uh, he is already guilty of what we just talked about. Um, he is guilty of stepping free from the trap, all right? So he's already in that zone. We admire his courage here because he doesn't withdraw in the face of persecution. So his courage right here is commendable. But what is even more commendable in this moment is how he sidesteps trap number two. Now, here's what trap number two is. Philip has just done all of this glorious ministry that we read about, right? Delivering people from demons, healing the sick, salvation. He has just done all of this in a place called Samaria. Samaria, okay? Now, here's the, deal with, here's the deal with Samaria. Samaria happens to be full of Samaritans, all right, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> Jews and Samaritans in Bible times hated each other, all right? Now, the hate went both ways, but a Jew coming towards Samaritans, here's why this is remarkable. The Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds, all right? Now, that, that's an ugly term. They considered them half-breeds. They, they, they looked at their worship and said, these people don't worship right. They have some Bible beliefs. They've mixed in a bunch of superstition. These guys, they're like one gigantic cult. Everybody in Samaria is unclean. And so what Jews have done up to this point, apart from Jesus, is they have withheld God from Samaria. 
You know, they've judged these people. They're unworthy and, and, and they, they've just stayed as far away as, as, as they can. And see, that is the trap for you and I to avoid. You know, like it or not, like it or not, everyone struggles with prejudice. You know what prejudice is? Prejudice is when, prejudice is when we judge someone. We look at somebody and we judge them. And then, you know what happens when you judge something or someone? You're dead to them. I talked, that, I talked about that in regards to worship uh, quite probably a year or so ago. I said, you know, one of the dangers of worship, you know, we all have a style we like. Well, there's also the style we don't like. And it's real easy to go, well, you know what? I can't stand those hymns. You know what happens when you make that judgmental declaration? You die to that completely. Well, the same is true of people. When we judge people as unworthy, too bad for God to save, too different from us, we, we, we die to them. We will never cross their paths. Well, Philip is modeling a very different motto here. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He died to save everybody. He embraces that truth, and man, he's gone. And so he crosses the border just like Jesus did in John chapter 4 doesn't he? He proclaims the love of God to the Samaritans just like Jesus did. And then what does God do? Well, God proves that Philip is on track. God is like, you're, you're preaching my love. I will show these people my love. And so what happens? Man, people start getting healed. People start getting delivered. Almost the whole town gets saved. The joy of God is flooding the streets. It's a completely different scenario. All because Philip dared not to step in that trap of prejudice. And man, it would have been tempting in that world. So we got those first two traps. Before this story ends, we are hit with another episode that, um, and it's, it's pretty remarkable, that follows right after this mini crusade. And it reveals the last two traps for us. Um, Luke reveals to us in Acts 8 9 through 13, that this city in Samaria is also kind of unique. Um, it's remarkable. And what is remarkable about it is that this city is under the influence of a cult leader. A cult leader dominates this city. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've been in ministry for a long time, 30-something years. That, that, that's something I have yet to run into, a whole city dominated by, uh, by, by a cult leader. But it's true. A man named Simon has bewitched an entire town with his sorcery. And when I say an entire town, see if you agree. Verse 10, all of the townspeople, both high and low, gave Simon their attention. And they exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. That's incredible. This guy, this guy has a heavy reputation as either being divine, meaning he's a God himself, or he is powerfully and divinely just, just empowered and filled. And see, here's the thing. In this, in this situation, this is not idle chatter, okay? It's not like, like Simon said, you know what? I'm going to start a rumor with some of the most gullible people in town. I'll get them to spread it around, and I'll just get a big reputation. The Word tells us here in verse 11, this is no urban legend. Simon had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. So what's the point here? Y'all, Simon has got some legitimate sorcery skills. He has, now they're clearly demonic, but, but his magical powers, they are very real. And yet, 
Philip has ridden into town on his white charger with a greater power, a better power. It is a power of goodness and love. Lives are being changed. Somebody bigger has come to town. And what's happened is Philip coming in and demonstrating and proclaiming Jesus like this, it's caused all these people who are over here at Simon's gig, they've all left Simon and now they're over here with Philip. They've, they've left giving their attention to Satan. Suddenly they're, getting, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're giving it to God and the next thing we see is a gigantic swim party, right? Everybody's getting baptized. Everybody is believing in Jesus Christ. It's, it's an amazing thing. So what's happening here is God is shutting down Simon's spiritual sideshow. He, God is just like, you're closed for business, brother. And, and so now do you see what's happening? You see what God just did? We started off in Acts 8, 1, 1 through 3, and the church is being persecuted, okay? Uh, Satan is persecuting God. Well, by the time you get to, to verse 11, God is now persecuting Satan. Now, that's a twist. That's a fantastic twist. God's power even gets to Simon. Simon, what, what does he do? He hears the message of Jesus Christ. He sees the works that, that, you know, that are happening. Uh, word says he even believed, and yes, it was probably a very rustic belief, and there's a lot of junk this guy's got to work through, but he believes enough to where he sees the swim party, he just dives in himself. He gets baptized, and then he starts following Philip everywhere. He's astonished by these miracles, these signs, these wonders, this message, the, these lives that are being changed. Philip is completely blown away. He's like, man, I'm a sad act compared to this. Look at God go. And so what Philip has done here is he's avoided trap number three, which is the fear of man trap. And that's, that, that, that's where we, we eyeball somebody. You know, we, we see them, and the call of God is to share, share the good news of Jesus Christ, to begin to pray for them, to, to reach out to them in goodness, but we eyeball them, and we just kind of go, man, that dude, that, that, that guy's a bad, bad Leroy Brown. I mean, he, he's the baddest man in the whole town, you know? I mean, th th this guy's a Goliath. How in the world can I do that? But, you know, we do that sometimes. We judge that somebody is too big, that somebody's too far gone. And we forget the truth that, look, if God calls us to face Goliath, right? If God puts Goliath in my path, hey, God can take Goliath down with pebbles. Isn't that what happened the last time? You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean God can take Goliath down if he wants to. So there are three traps, right? There is persecution, which can become a trap and make us just withdraw and withhold the good news of Jesus Christ. The first church understands that, man, persecution, that's just an opportunity for God to do something bigger and better. The second trap is prejudice that makes us keep the message to ourselves and forget about that lost, ugly world. But see, the first church understood that Jesus Christ came for people on both sides of the tracks. There, there, there's nobody he didn't come for. And then the third one is fear of man that just makes us run away in terror from, you know, this big person in, in, in front of us. See, Romans 8, 31, the church, it hadn't even been written yet, but the first church has already got it. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's a fourth trap, though, and I'm going to take a couple of extra minutes on this one. This is where you need to tighten the belt because this is good. Acts 8, 14 through 17 when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria, 
The idea is to investigate. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on, or in some of your Bibles, many of your Bibles, upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There, my friends, is trap number four, okay? That, it, kahuna, this is the big kahuna, right? The big kahuna of theological debate that has raged for centuries, which is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Theologians have gone back and forth on this for centuries. The church, oh my gosh, has kept this ball in play as well. And, and, and what they argue about, what they, is there a second experience of the Holy Spirit? Do we really need the fullness of the Holy Spirit like they did in the book of Acts? And it just goes on and on and on. Many people point to this passage and they say, you know what? There it is. That's proof. There is a second experience uh, of the Holy Spirit, we receive the Holy Spirit's uh, fullness after we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and it happens at a later time. Other people fire back, this proves nothing. We receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. That's it. Okay, so th there's, your two, there's your two parties. That, that's the Hatfields and that's the McCoys. So here's the question. Who's right and who's wrong? Both on both accounts, all right? So let's start at the beginning. And I, I, won't go to, I won't go back to the very beginning, right? When we ask Jesus Christ into our hearts, we are saved, all right? The Holy Spirit enters. We are sealed. We are saved. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He is God and he is in us, okay? So... We got that, right? So what's happening here? Well, what's happening here in this moment is not something new. Because sometimes you hear that, all oh, this teaching on the Holy Spirit. This is just, this is Johnny come lately, man. The Bible's been going for centuries and centuries. And, you know, all, oh, this is just a brand new theology that didn't last very long. But see, what's happening here is not a new thing. This, the Holy Spirit hitting these people like this, y'all, this is old, in fact, this is not old, it's just ancient. In the Old Testament, every major Old Testament figure that is mighty, all right, anybody that we would call a hero of the faith, every one of them had something in common. What they had in common, these people who live these gigantic God adventures in the Old Testament, they had the common experience, you can go back and read for yourself, of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were empowered for a great God mission. So this is one time in your Bibles that a preposition, you know, preposition, those are the little guys, right? Read past the prepositions, the ons, the all the, well, this one, this four-letter preposition upon, it is a heavyweight in Scripture. It is a very big deal that the Holy Spirit came upon, a very big deal. Because you see, without the Holy Spirit coming upon them like this, well, nobody's very special. In the Old Testament, Samson, he's just a big, strong guy. But lots of other big, strong guys out there. He's just one of many. David, um, well, you know, David is it, it's just a kid with a knack for leadership. That's about it. The prophets are, are just ordinary guys. 
Well, maybe, maybe they were kind of, many of them were strange beforehand, but they're, they're, just, they're just pretty usual people, right? Gideon, he's just a farmer hiding out in a wine vat. That's all he is. And yet for everyone and others, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were mighty. They were mighty for God. And that is the point of Acts 8, 14 through 17. You know, this debate is raging. What about this? What about this? Yeah, everybody's missing the point. The point is this. The Spirit of God had not yet come upon these people in in power yet to empower them for ministry. The point is they needed the Holy Spirit to come upon them, to make them extraordinary for God. That's the point. They need the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit and His coming upon us, you know, that can happen in a second experience that we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that that term is a biblical term. It can happen that way. It happened that way quite often for many people in Scripture. But it's not just the Word. Many of us can testify to the same thing. Now, we got baptized in the Holy Spirit. The whole, we accepted Jesus Christ, and at a later time, we came to understand about the fullness, the need for the Holy Spirit. And, you know, in, in a, sur- a moment of surrendering prayer, man, God hit us. I mean, you know, I, I always tell people, I just got jacked up with the Holy Spirit one day. It changed everything. I was the worst speaker. Here's the funny thing about me. I, I preached a sermon. I was not going to do this, but I'll do it. My wife's not here, so I can tell. The first sermon I ever preached, I got up. And uh, this pastor said, hey, I think God's calling you to be a minister. And I I had not yet experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I got up and preached for 10 minutes. And it was so bad. Jane's parents were there. And her dad was just wiping his forehead. Everybody's looking at each other. And I stopped preaching right in the middle of it. And I was like, "Uh, that's all I got in the past. I mean, it was the worst thing you've ever heard. I got filled with the Holy Spirit. My tongue got loosed. In other words, I got empowered. I got empowered when the Holy Spirit hit me. You know? And it's, it's really important to know this. All of these people in Scripture who are going out and sharing Jesus like this, you know, they're, all, they're not going out in legalism. Well, God said do it. Goodness gracious, I better do it. I don't want to go, go to hell now and lose my salvation. They're, they're full of the Spirit of God. And that can happen in a second experience, in a second prayer. But you know what? It can also happen at salvation. I've prayed with people for salvation before, and I've seen God go ahead and zap them right then. It it, it can happen one way or the other. But the point is this, God is unique. Look at the ministry of Jesus with everybody. You know, Jesus didn't have like a format. Okay, well, okay, uh, okay, you're sick, so here's what we do. Step one, step two, step three. It's different with every person. His messages are different. The point is, God is unique. He rarely works the same way in all people. The point is, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit in ministry to be the church. And so the solution for this debate, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, and I haven't been invited to a seminary to say this, but the solution is we need some more humility in our theology. We need a humble theology. And by that, what I mean is, man, theologians do this all the time. They become guilty, uh, church leaders too, okay? We do this. We get guilty of uh, of 1 Corinthians 8.1, which says knowledge puffs up. You know, we study the Word of God. We get to know this and that. You know, finally, we, get, we learn just enough to get dangerous, and we climb up into the ivory tower. Suddenly, we've got God all figured out, you know? Oh, this is how the kingdom of God works. This is how God is. And, and I'll tell you this. In the Word of God, there is so much that's clear. There's so much that's clear. Oh, what we need to know, there is no question that it is right there in a way we can't miss it. But you know what else is in the Bible? There's mystery. 
that there is some elasticity in the Word of God. But see, that's not good for a theologian. Why? Well, because I got to have it all figured out. If I'm going to keep my creds, I got to know everything. It just doesn't work like that. The Word of God tells us, you know, it says that His, it says that God's ways are higher. God's ways are better than ours. Higher and better are good, you know, right? But it also means we can't quite get our mind around every single thing. So instead of driving people away or driving people crazy with theological minutia, saying we've got every aspect of God in the kingdom figured out, we just need to accept the fact that there are some things in Scripture that are just a little outside of our drive for precision and embrace what we know from God. And what do we know from God? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Savior of all. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to God. There is no way to come to life without Jesus. That's a good one to camp out on. Here's another one to camp out on. From today, we need to open and surrender ourselves to God's fullness as His people. Amen. And then as God fills us with the Holy Spirit, we need to celebrate how God fills us and how God fills others, however it is that God would empower us. And so as a biblical Christian, you know what's a really great thing to be able to do? Is to look at somebody like a Catherine Kuhlman. Has anyone ever heard of Catherine Kuhlman? Powerful healing ministry, okay? Catherine was a little bit different, right? I mean, when she ministered, Catherine, you know, she had big flowing robes and, you know, she's all over the place. Isn't that great? But, yeah, it was just Catherine Coleman. She, she is quite different. I'll tell you this, the power of God flowed through that woman to heal people. The church, half the church would mock her. I believe a biblical Christian would say, God, thank you. Thank you for how you empowered that woman. That's not my story, that's her, but I rejoice in the gifts of healing you've given that woman. Here's another one. Evangelism. Whose name do you think of when it comes to Evangelism. Billy Graham, y'all, God gifted that man in, 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 in evangelism. I, will, I have watched him preach a hundred times. Seriously, I pull up his sermons and watch him. Billy's a good preacher, but he's not the most amazing preacher in the world, you know? And I know I'm going to get hate mail on that uh, from, from Mark. Mark's a Billy Graham. You know, Billy would pretty, he would pretty much preach the same thing every time and then say, the buses will wait. And then he would fold his arms and everybody would come to Jesus, you know? It's incredible. I've, I've got a friend named Nate. He's the same way. Uh, Nate Horn in Charlotte. So, Nate, if you listen to this, this is for you. Nate, Nate is one of the goofiest people you ever met. You know, he, he's not wound too tight in terms of just being a real uptight kind of, you know, structured, rigid person. Nate can go up to almost anybody and share about Jesus Christ and boom, they just fall. It doesn't matter how big they are, they just fall. That is the spiritual gift of evangelism. And so we want to be quick to celebrate that kind of stuff. And even among us, you know, gifts of service that God grants people with, like Buffy, Lori, I don't see Henry in the room today. Many others of you, the deacons, man, God has just hit you guys with that beautiful spiritual gift. There's a gift of worship in this place, right? We saw that in some of our leadership today. Shiloh wasn't here, but Eric got up and led. We've seen Brian do it, Josh, Nancy. We've seen our choir performing that, just that beautiful spiritual gifting. The bottom line is we need the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So there are four traps we want to avoid. Withdrawing in the face of persecution, um, not falling prey to prejudice, 
uh, not giving into the fear of man, and for goodness sake, not getting caught up in a bear trap of debate about the Holy Spirit who is God and is beyond debate. So with that settled in Samaria and with that settled now at KPC, let me just end with Acts 8.25, which is a beautiful exclamation point. It says, they further proclaimed the word of God and they testified about Jesus. And then Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Just what a beautiful end. And I think the they here is probably the apostles, Philip, the deacons, the church, and now the Samaritans. They further proclaimed. And even Peter and John, picking up from Samaria, uh, going all the way back to Jerusalem, what do they do? They just preach, preach Jesus all the way back home. I want to pray for us. Father, in Jesus' name, we marvel at your word. God, I am so thankful for Philip as an example, as a co-laborer in Christ. Lord, I have never met him, but I feel like I know this man. And I thank you for just revealing him to us today. I thank you for opening up his life. Lord, I thank you that he models a, a Christianity. Lord, a faith that is so livable for us. Father, we thank you today for the salvation of Jesus Christ, that we are rescued. We are no longer sons and daughters of darkness, but we are sons and daughters of the living God. God, everything about us is new, but Lord, we want a life that is new as well. America and, and just our world culture pulls us down. It wants us to just be quiet, to just blend in, but God, you offer something so much better. The first thing you offer us is a command to go and to be, to share, to proclaim. And God, you don't just tell us to go out there and figure out how to get it done, you equip us with your spirit. So God, I pray that you would help us to be so mindful that God, if you are with us, nobody can be against us. Lord, we, we cannot really be persecuted down here not with you as our Father. And Lord, also, I pray that you would give us eyes to see people before us, that you would give us a heart to love them. God, I pray that we would see the beauty, we would just see beauty, your beauty, in the lives of people that, that we may have written off, and that, God, we would just go ahead and write them right back in. But God, I am asking you as well to just fill us as a church, fill us as believers. I know there may be some in the room today who have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I just want you to know in this moment, he loves you. He died for you. It doesn't matter what you have done or what you have not done. That's not the point. The point is the cross. The point is that Jesus died that you might have life. Today, receive him. I just urge you, while it is called today, receive him as Lord and Savior and be new today in Jesus' name. And Lord, for the rest of us in this place, God, for, for any here who have never dared to surrender, to open the doors of their heart, whether it was through fear or bad theology or seeing people who are out of control, but, but have stood at a distance from your spirit today, we just wanna offer the invitation to open your heart and surrender to the fullness of God. And just welcome the Holy Spirit. Welcome him as God. Welcome as sovereign Lord. And then for the rest of us who are in here, so many have, have received the fullness of the Spirit before. 
And yet your word tells us, it says in Ephesians 5.18, to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not meant to be one moment in our lives. It is meant to be a continual refreshing. And so God, as the pastor, I ask you, God, would you refresh me in your Holy Spirit? Father, would you touch us? Would you just baptize us anew? Fill us to overflowing with your Spirit. Oh God, we need you. We love you. This will never go forward without you. We can't half do it or be half equipped and get there. So God, would you fill, equip, touch your, holy, touch your church with your spirit today. We love you. We honor you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.